Oh hi, it's Smasha, here a little early just to let you know that we had a few technical problems during this recording. If we're a little quiet or there's noise in the background, I just wanted to apologize ahead of time. Hope you enjoy the show! Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Sasha Neuer. And I'm Megan Ward. And we're very excited to have you back on. Megan, what have you been up to over the last week? I have done some thesis writing, but most importantly, I went to Medieval Times in Toronto last weekend. That sounds like a great time. It was wonderful. (laughs) What about you, Sasha? I've been doing a lot of skiing. I got out in that negative 35 degree spell. I can't say the skiing was awesome, but I'm really proud of myself for doing it. Yeah, surviving negative 35 is definitely something to be proud of. Well, thanks. (laughs) We are very excited to have our second guest. We'll be having Erin on to talk about her research. So here we go. Hi, Erin. Welcome to the podcast. We are super excited to have you. Do you want to take a minute and introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name's Erin Matula. I grew up in northern Wisconsin. I did my undergraduate degree in Michigan in the States as well at Northern Michigan University in Marquette. That was on the same topic as I'm studying right now, environmental science. Just this past January, I started my master's degree, so it's all new to me. Awesome. New to Peterborough, new to Ontario. Very exciting. (laughs) Have you ever been on a podcast before or is this your first time? I have actually. I've been on one podcast and one radio show. The podcast is just a fun little social thing. The episode that I was on, I started becoming an amateur traveler at that point. I wanted to take a trip on a plane by myself and so I went over to Oregon, kind of smack dab in the middle of the state over there by Eugene and Corvallis. We just went out on an adventure. I'm going on an adventure! We ended up, I think, getting lost actually. Oh no. (laughs) That kind of makes the best adventures though, so. Exactly. More professionally, I was on the Wisconsin Public Radio. We covered my undergraduate research in wild rice phenology. Just so we're all on the same page, phenology is defined as the study of the timing of reoccurring biological events. So for example, when flowers bloom, when insects emerge, that kind of thing on six lakes over in Wisconsin. Aquatic invasives had a big part of the research, especially since we were funded by clean boats, clean waters, so that played a big part of the research. In Wisconsin particularly, but all across wild rice's original range, it has been declining in both its range and in its population. There's a whole bunch of reasons that contribute to it, and that's why we decided to do more of a phenology whole-scale approach to it rather than doing a small-scale experiment, especially being paired with the Lactoflambeau band of Lake Superior Chippewa. They wanted to see the whole-scale approach. So we picked out six lakes. Two of them had invasive species. Two of them had populations that weren't doing so great, and two of them had populations that were doing pretty well. We monitored these lakes for two years. One of the lakes that had invasive species 
had a surprisingly good population. So that was a little bit of a surprise. We're trying to write up a manuscript on that. Well, that's very exciting. The rice is doing okay when there's an invasive species. What kind of invasive species were you looking at in the context of wild rice? We're looking at two invasive species, curly leaf pondweed and Eurasian water milfoil. Those are the most common in wild rice lakes that have some sort of intersection and why this one population was doing pretty good while there was curly leaf pondweed in the lake was because curly leaf likes the channels while wild rice prefers under one meter of water. We did have a lake with Eurasian water milfoil. They were mixed together. There was still parts where the Eurasian grew in much deeper water and the wild rice could grow in much shallower water and we got to look into the data a little bit more closely to figure that one out. Well, that research is very topical for the Peterborough area because we have wild rice in the Peterborough County. And so I'm sure there's lots of people that would be interested in knowing whether or not invasive species are going to be impacting wild rice right here in our own backyard. Yeah, and I especially love aquatic invasive species research because that is what I study. So big fan of the Eurasian milfoil. I mean, technically not, but also I enjoy the research. So what can I say? So when you're not focusing on grad school, what else catches your interest? It always depends on the season. So right now, now I'm out cross-country skiing quite a bit and I've actually started coaching. I used to coach high school back this past year over in Michigan. Other seasons I like foraging for wild foods. So for those of us who are not sitting in this room recording, Erin has on a mushroom t-shirt. So Erin, do you forage for mushrooms or do you just wear mushrooms? I forage for mushrooms. Sweet. My favorite one is probably the chanterelle because they're so easy to find and they do have lookalikes. I just wanted to pop in and let all of my Ontario listeners know that according to iNaturalist, there's at least two types of poisonous lookalikes to chanterelles. So if you're out there foraging, please be careful. I actually found the honey mushrooms that by luminesce at night. That is so amazing. I know, it's so exciting. I, I didn't know what I was looking at. Because it was pitch black, I was walking around, and I just saw this weird pale yellow, really faint glow. Mushrooms! So can you give us a bit of information about your past research history? Where were you before you came to Trent? Before I knew I wanted to go into research, I was into research without even knowing it. My mom collected water samples. I always wanted to help with that. Further down the road, I did some drone stream crossing research. We didn't get to ask the questions in that research. We just did the on the ground work, but that made me realize that I wanted to ask the questions and I wanted to have a little bit more control. Will you follow me? So before we jump into the specifics about your research, what has been so far the best part of grad school? This one day last Friday, I was tasked by my advisor to figure out how to do a watershed delineation. That's just a big fancy term for finding the shapes of all the watersheds around the lakes that I'm trying to find. I kept on getting pushed back because it wasn't working. <laughs> and then finally, I got to talking with a couple people that were really good references for it, and I finally figured it out, and it was such a good feeling to actually make that code work in R. And for those of you who don't know, Erin just started her master's in January and we're currently recording this mid-February. So it's wonderful that you're already making strides in your research because Lord knows that does not always happen to everyone right away. <laughs> I 
I'm interested in greenhouse gases coming out of lakes. I'm looking at this in boreal systems, so that's not just boreal forests and lakes and boreal areas, it's the whole ecosystem. And we have that across northern Canada. It's really fun forest to be in. It feels so old, like you could start an adventure at any moment. I'm in the environmental and life sciences program. My advisor, he's also pretty new, Dr. Andrew Chanzap. He used to be in the plant sciences department at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Now he's shifting his focus a little bit more into the greenhouse gases. And I actually have a co-advisor with an adjunct faculty member, Eric Emelson. He is mainly working through Natural Resources Canada. So how do late boreal forests and greenhouse gases all connect to each other. To understand that first, you gotta have a little bit of understanding with the carbon cycle. So that's just how carbon moves throughout the world. So we can start from the atmosphere. It is fixed by forest or any sort of vegetation through photosynthesis. So these trees or the soil in the forests are sinks. So what a sink is, it, it just secures carbon for a period of time. Then once you have it in the forest, it's broken down there's a lot of things that it can do to move on one of them is called leaching that's just when you have free carbon in the soil you also have water in the soil from rain that water eventually moves into lakes we call that leaching another way is overland runoff when it storms you have rain and that it picks up things along the way and moves carbon into lakes and rivers so I think the average person, when they think of a carbon sink, they probably think about the glaciers and how the glaciers hold a lot of carbon. And of course they're melting and releasing a lot of carbon back into the atmosphere, but there's no glaciers where you are. So is there a way that climate change is having an effect on these landscapes and how carbon is being released and the rate at which carbon is being released back into the environment? Climate change brings about more frequent storm events, but one thing that I'm focusing on is wildfires. I have a history of wildland firefighters in my family, so I definitely wanted to pair that into my research. But fires are required in these systems. There's a certain return interval, so they require a fire every so often just to keep the forests regular, just to tame them down to make sure they don't get too much buildup of matter on the forest floor because it has to be burned at some point. Many of these trees were my friends. I'm sorry, Treebeard. But if you have fires that are getting more intense or fires that have been suppressed for a while and so there's all this matter to be burned, the fire's gonna come back more intense. What that does is first it releases a bunch of carbon into the atmosphere, carbon dioxide as well as particulates and smoke, but then also there's charred carbon left over from the vegetation, from the carbon in the soil because the top layer of organic matter in the soil is burned and that with overland runoff and leaching that carbon moves into lakes and rivers and that either gets reincorporated into the sediment moves out to the ocean or is emitted back into the atmosphere from the lake so just tell me if i'm right or wrong in this little summary so 
Generally, we have natural forest fire levels and they help burn some of the vegetation in a forest, allow it to regrow, sometimes releases some carbon and that's normal and fine. But now because of climate change and global warming, we're seeing an increase in the number of forest fires. And so it's no longer this natural level that we're used to. It's this unnatural level that releases way more carbon and burns way more matter. Is that correct? Exactly. We want to know when we have these severe wildfires, there's more carbon going into these systems. Is there more carbon coming out of these systems through emissions from the lake? How exactly is the fire changing the composition of the water? Because when I think of those two elements, they don't mix. Mm -hmm. So how is the fire actually changing the water, especially in a large system like a lake? There are a few main things that happen after a fire. One thing that we're going to look into is what happens after a fire at different timescales, seasonally, week by week. One of the main things that happens is all the vegetation is burned. What plants are there to fix? carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There's nothing really there to actually start that. First of all, there's an excess of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in that area. There's nothing to fix it in one spot. So carbon fixation is the process by which cells in plants can take carbon from the atmosphere and turn it into a biological molecule. So for example, sugars, they do this via photosynthesis, which I won't bore you with the equation of, but I just wanted to throw in a quick definition of what fixation is. So to summarize what you just said, similarly to photosynthesis, and when we think about that natural process, all the time carbon is being pulled from the atmosphere, being released into the atmosphere. It's this natural cycle that occurs. Exactly. This is why we're looking at boreal forests in particular, because boreal forests are just really good at what they do. They're one of the top carbon sinks. So understanding that process then is so much more important in these habitats because they already have so many of these carbon sinks. They're already storing so much carbon. Exactly. So if there's a fire in a forest, can we expect more carbon to be in all of the waterways surrounding the area? That's what we're looking into. We believe that there's going to be more carbon coming into the lake at different points. Right after a fire, especially if there's some type of precipitation event, there's going to be more carbon coming in. So how does this all tie in with greenhouse gases? I feel like that's a very popular term in the media, especially when we talk about climate change what are greenhouse gases and how they impact the environment. So with what you're studying, this potential increase in carbon release from a forest into a water and then eventually into the atmosphere, how does that all tie in with greenhouse gases? While the carbon dioxide coming out of a forest fire is really important, what we want to know is what's happening in the lakes. More carbon is going into the lakes. Is there more carbon coming out? So there are certain biological processes within a lake that change carbon from its form in water because you might have certain dissolved types of carbon, dissolved organic carbon, dissolved inorganic carbon, some carbon in dissolved organic matter that all change and can be released into the atmosphere. And so are lakes able to keep up with this 
increased input of carbon and will it be releasing at the same time as the fire? Is there a certain delay to it? These are all things that are theorized and there's quite a few studies that line up the biological processes and how they should work, but are they really doing that? Right, so there's like a timeline you're trying to get a kind of a hold on. We have a fire, what happens in the forest? What happens then to the water? Does that lead into changes in the atmosphere? It's going to be this interesting timeline of maybe some lagging, maybe like a very thorough follow through of the exchange of carbon. And it'll be cool to track that as it moves from a forest ecosystem to the water back into the atmosphere. So I can picture the forest fire. I can picture all the water moving through the landscape. What I can't picture is how you are going to go out there and measure carbon in the water and in the air. So can you tell us a little bit more about what your field work is going to entail? Yeah, this is the fun part. (laughs) (laughs) So one part of it is taking the carbon measurements in the water. We are going to have this little autonomous surface vehicle, which is just a boat drone that will go and take water samples. And so in the water, we're looking for dissolved organic matter and we're taking a couple pH and alkalinity measurements and that will be a proxy for dissolved organic carbon. For the atmospheric side of things, we're going to have what's called a flux tower. So it's just a big tower. It's set up at a vantage point where it is taking greenhouse gas measurements in the atmosphere and that does a pretty good job at summarizing what's going on over this big area encompassing the forest and the lake. How are you choosing these sites? So are you planning to go and take all these measurements before a forest fire and after? And how do you decide where a forest fire is going to be that year? I was really excited initially because I thought we were going to do a prescribed burn. But two things, we couldn't get a burn permit and a prescribed burn doesn't emulate a wildfire that well because it's not that severe. And to actually pick the sites, that was one thing I mentioned earlier that I was really excited about to figure out the watershed delineation. So first I got to get these watersheds and because I have them all puzzle pieced together, I can overlay other data sets that have vegetation, roads, so we can make sure we actually can get out there and not have a three mile hike. And then we're layering on a fire data set as well. So there will have already been fires over there. We'll have the day that that fire occurred and we'll have a group of about 10 lakes with old fires. 10 lakes that have been recently burned, and 10 control. This is where it gets a little bit tricky in writing this up. I have two parts, two chapters. One's gonna be focused on taking the measurements in the water by fire sites, and in the other chapter, we're gonna have one tower set up and it's gonna be stable. We can't control if there's a fire there or not. We're just gonna have it set up really well at that one lake. I guess very well if there's a fire coming through. (laughs) So what is the overall goal of your masters? You've given us like specific goals and field work you're going to be doing. What's kind of like the main thing you're hoping to get out of a master's? On the research side of things, this is going to be pretty influential in the policy and large scale planning. Otherwise, personally, I always believe going into a master's, it's all about the process. No matter how you feel personally about the topic, it's all about the process, learning how to do the research. That's the most important side. If I do go into a PhD, that's when uh, the passion about the topic is going to play in and learning how to ask that question and lead the research instead of just doing the research. 
we do have some Lord of the Rings themed questions for you now, so we might just jump into that. So who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character and why? Both Radagast and Bombadil, just because both of them are just a little bit out there. They're really connected to the environments that they're in. I don't strive to be them specifically, but I strive <laughs> to have better connections like that to my surrounding environment. Oh. I had a thought, and now I've lost it. It's it right there on the tip of my tongue. It's not a thought at all. It's just a little stick insect. Totally fair. <laughs> so in both movies and books, Radagast always has a group of animals with him. What's something you've always had by your side throughout grad school? It's a little short time frame since I've only been here for a month or so, but I actually brought it in. It's really cute. When you're coding, the rubber duck theory absolutely works. You're not always around people when you're coding and you run into all these mistakes. Sometimes it's just a really silly mistake where you just misplace a letter or something. The theory is if you have a rubber duck and you recite the code back into your rubber duck, then you you can figure out the problems much more streamlined. Since I went to Iceland, I didn't want a rubber duck, I wanted a rubber puffin. And that's what I have by my workstation. I think everybody in grad school, when they enter, needs either a rubber puffin or a rubber duck. Do you have a name for your rubber puffin? His name is Rick, it's short for Reykjavik, the capital. Classic. <laughs> So in The Hobbit, we see Radagast being pulled on his sled by a team of Roskbedell rabbits. At first, Thorin Oakenshield and the rest of the team kind of assumes the rabbits are slow and will likely be caught by the wargs that are chasing them. However, the rabbits outrun the wargs and they actually save the day. So was there ever a time in your grad school journey that you used an unlikely source to save the day? I've only told this to my best friend so far. Ooh, <laughs> information. Exactly. I, I knew going into this, I've had a season's worth of a break and my advisor is really enthusiastic about writing, but I've had a bit of a break, so it's a little bit hard getting back into it. I'm a big reader. I've been reading Iron Druid Chronicles and Priory of the Orange Tree. You and I are chatting after this because <laughs> I'm also a big reader, so we'll, you have to hang on a minute after this podcast. <laughs> For is done. sure. I'm reading alongside. It's good to relax, but then this also spurs so many ideas that I want to write my own book, some sort of fiction book, definitely something high fantasy. It has to be really well thought out. There and back again, a hobbit's tale by Bilbo Baggins. So if I have this passion project doesn't seem like the right word for it, but if I have these little mind puzzles to pair along with my work, it's just something to get my imagination going and something that it's a little bit of kindling to start writing because I'm going to be really excited about this type of fiction writing first because I get to incorporate so much more of me into it. And I've definitely noticed that writing outside of school context is really helpful for writing in school. You know what? I feel the same way because I read quite a lot of fantasy and I write like just on the side for fun and I have found that now that I'm writing my thesis it helps me write quite a bit more when I am already kind of in the mood and you're used to like typing out ideas and just getting on the page so yeah if any grad student is struggling getting that sort of kickstart into writing whether it's a proposal a thesis a grant application sometimes reading for fun helps you sort of get your brain moving in that way exactly you might think it's gonna take up so much time to actually write more in a different context but it pays off and of course we have to ask if you had a sled pulled by a group of animals what would you choose Hmm. I think I would choose 
there's that one mixed bird and dragon creature in the priory with the orange tree. Okay, so the creatures Aaron is talking about are actually called cockatrices, and they originally showed up in the Bible, but they have really strong roots in English mythology. They're basically a dragon with two legs and a rooster head and bird wings, and depending on the images you look at, they can look really scary. They sound like they would be super badass to pull a sleigh. Even though that's supposed to be a lowly hybrid, that <laughs> sounds like a cool creature. It's still what you would choose to pull your sled. Yeah. yeah. Obviously the most badass option. Could be yeah. Easily. A mix between a dragon? Like, okay, anytime. <laughs> so if the listeners should remember one thing from today's episode, what would it be? Not necessarily topically related, but while you're working, find something that you can do in tandem to always instill your passion for your project. Some people say to work hard and just play later, have those separated, but it makes a big difference if you compare the two at least some of the time. Amen. Yeah. So in conclusion, where can our listeners contact you if they're interested in learning more about your research? My email would probably be the best at this point. We'll include the email in the show notes if you're interested in getting in touch with Aaron. Thanks so much for tuning in to the second episode of Fellowship of the Research podcast, and we hope you catch the next one. And remember, you shall pass. Climate change is a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> We here at FOTR definitely do believe in climate change, and just like Smaug, it's a horror that's coming for us all. Thank you so much to our guest, Aaron Matula. It was a treat to have you on. And thank you to Sadler House for the recording setup and space. We literally couldn't do this without you. If you want to find out more about the podcast, about the hosts, or about our guests today, you can find all links down in the show notes on our Spotify. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.